in the run-up to the passage of the Affordable Care Act, some of you may recall one way that proponents tried to show what lack of health insurance looks like in the U.S. That was people lining up by the thousands to access screenings and care at mobile health vans that would pull up in shopping center parking lots for a few days to offer free services before moving on to a new location. This image has stayed with me for a number of reasons, but I bring it up today because of the powerful contrast between it and what we're going to be talking about today on WIHI. Less drive-by health care, even if that serves a critical purpose too at times, and more a reliable delivery vehicle, literally and figuratively, that's earning its rightful place in what kind of system we need going forward, especially if we're serious about equity and population health. We're pulling up in communities and neighborhoods today on mobile health fans on this edition of WIHI. And I want to say welcome to everyone from WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you bi-weekly and also for later listening and convenience. You can find us on IHI.org by the next morning and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. We started just a few minutes late uh, today because of a few technical difficulties. Um, it remains to be seen whether my wonderful uh, crew here is able to kind of get some slides moving uh, as we're talking. But we do have audio, and we have all the guests, and we do have a fabulous to- topic. So if for some reason we don't have all the visuals that we would normally have, they'll all be there on the website by tomorrow morning, promise. So we're back also after an August break, and we have lots in store for you on WIHI this month and this fall. There is some very smart and serious and innovative work going on with mobile clinics that couldn't be more relevant to the improvement agenda today, especially population health and pursuing the triple aim. A reminder, if you like to use Twitter, we welcome your tweets during or after the program. Uh, IHI has a Twitter handle of at the IHI. The Family Van you're going to hear about today has a Twitter feed, at Family Van. Is there a the in there or at Family Van? At the family van. At the family van is the Twitter. Or at family van. At family van. At family van. Okay. (laughs) All right. Here we go. We're going to introduce our guests. And uh, always a reminder, they have longer bios and so many accomplishments and achievements. You can find that on our website as well as their own organization's website. So first, let me welcome Dr. Nancy Oriol. She's here in the studio. She's Dean for Students at Harvard Medical School and a lecturer in social medicine in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard. She's also in the Department of Anesthesia, Critical Care, and Pain Medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Nancy's got a long list of pioneering innovations in clinical medicine, education, and health services delivery, and that list does include mobile health clinics. And so that's one of the wonderful reasons she's here with us today. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you very much. All right. On the phone, and I'm sort of wondering if it's Leo that we're getting static. Leo is driving, um, and that just happens sometimes. We live in this real world where people are doing multiple things at multiple times. We're so grateful to have Dr. Leo Lacayo with us. He is currently the only licensed gastroenterologist at Northern Louisiana Medical Center. He is co-founder, along with his wife, Lisa, of Linking the Parish Incorporated. That's a nonprofit organization that, among other things, runs the Mobile Health Hut. That's the name of it, Health Hut in Ruston, Louisiana. Welcome, Leo. Are you there? Thank you very much. All right, we'll work on that. We've got all kinds of uh, challenges today, but we'll work them all out. Dr. Anthony Vavasis is also uh, on the line. He's currently the Director of Medicine at Callan Lord Community Health Center in New York City. He serves as the board chair of the Mobile Health Clinics Association, and he is the co-principal investigator on the Mobile Health Map Research Project. You'll hear more about that. Dr. Vavasis has provided care to high-risk youth on a mobile health clinic in New York City for the last 18 years. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you. All right. You're here. All right. Wonderful. To my left elbow here in the studio, back to the studio, is Jennifer Bennett, who has dedicated her 25-year career to growing organizations with a focus on social and economic justice. She started working at the Boston area's Family Van in 2005 as executive director, and the goal is to build the organization's capacity and effectiveness. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Matt. All right. And rounding out our panel, we're shooting out to Portland, Oregon, where Ninon Lewis, a director at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, uh, is there. She's 
leads IHI's Triple AIM initiative. She's been at a meeting there all week, um, and we're thrilled she's uh, there and here because she is awful busy uh, developing IHI's content and programming in community-wide improvement efforts. And I have her to thank and several others at IHI for uh, linking us up with the mobile health plan. So, Ninyan, I'm going to start with you. Welcome. Sure. Thanks. Happy to be here. Okay. All right. So, Ninyan, I don't think the WIHI audience who joined us today need too much convincing that a mobile health clinic serves an important function in many communities. But the assumption of what that means may be closer to that of safety net, uh, filling a gap, um, kind of making sure that people maybe who are in the most desperate straits in society aren't, you know, left out entirely. However, we want to take – we're taking – we're talking about something else that's going on, and I thought you could help uh, sort of set the stage for what we're going to learn about today from our other guests. Welcome again. Thanks, Madge. I think it's great to start off with some base knowledge about about population. Um, and at IHI, when we think about populations and population management, we sort of divide it up into two. Um, and one is a, a defined population or a discrete population. That's a population that makes good business sense. You can enumerate that population. You might pay for the care, like a health plan working with your own members. You might provide the care, like your health system working with your own insured patients or all the patients that call Dr. Smith their doctor within a particular community. That's a, that's a, a good population to, to start with. In fact, many many um, organizations actually start with their own employees when working with the triple AIM because they care about each dimension of the triple AIM um, and they care about a healthy workforce. So that, those are all defined populations. Now, in contrast, there's community-wide populations that are geographically bound. They're a little less, um, a little less uh, defined than, than some of the ones that make good business sense. Um, it might be a neighborhood block or a zip code or a collection of zip codes, a county or a state or even a nation we've seen. Um, and it's, it's for the good of the community that you're working on the triple AIM. Now, with the movement of the of healthcare systems towards population management and thinking about both those types of populations, now more than ever are those organizations and entities um, that work in healthcare delivery, they're really needing to build their own capacity to actually truly understand the, the needs of the population that they hold themselves accountable for. And that includes how to identify and assess the population, how to activate the population, and care for the population in brand new ways. Um, and this means we have to actually sort of build a new mental muscle for understanding the upstream determinants of health and not just the downstream effects. And that's often when the healthcare delivery system sees um, sees patients. Now, no matter what population you consider yourself responsible for, um, if you're to meet the needs of those individuals, it was like I said, it requires a new set of skills, and that includes collaboration with community-based supports. Now, um, what I love about about this WI and I've been waiting for a long time to feature mobile health clinics is the the cool thing about mobile health clinics is twofold. One, they're actually managing populations every day, um, seemingly under our noses, actually. Um, they have an intimate connection with patients right where they live and work. Um, they're actively trying to uh, new and creative ways to activate individuals as agents in their own health. They're constantly considering the whole patient deliver care in the most person-centered ways. Um, additionally, they're phenomenal assets to you as you're learning to manage the population that you serve. Um, they might be interacting with interacting with patients that you would love to care for and about that are unable to really care for them until they hit the system, and unfortunately, oftentimes, that's with an emergency department admission. Um, in addition, they're, they're working with high-risk populations, which everyone, especially in the U.S., and actually um, our sites all around, all around the world are, are thinking about high-risk, high-cost, high-utilizing patients. I'm really understanding them. They're working with them every day. Um, they're working with a lot of ambulatory care-sensitive conditions, and those are those conditions that appropriate ambulatory care can actually prevent a hospital admission. Um, and they can truly be your partner, your ear, your eyes. Um, and so as we start to hear from some of the other speakers today um, and hear their phenomenal stories from on-the-ground work, um, if you think about the fact that there's thousands of mobile health clinics across the country, um, thinking about how you actually begin to engage mobile health clinics possibly in your own work. And that starts with one. Think about what population do I actually consider myself accountable for in my organization? What patients do I get up every morning to serve? Um, additionally, how could I more intimately, if I know what that population is, how can I more intimately understand the needs of that, of that population? And how could I actually begin to partner and collaborate with community support? And then, and then might I actually try something out? Might I actually reach out to a mobile health clinic in my own community, sit down with them, 
ask them, how are you managing your population that you serve? What are you hearing on the ground? What are some of the everyday um, situations that many of our patients are in? Um, but you could help me out, and how can I help you? So those are some great guiding questions to just have in the back of your mind as you start to hear um, about mobile health clinics because what you'll see is um, stories of population management that you had no idea was going on um, right in our own backyard. So um, that's a good way to, to base some of those stories today, um, and I'm excited to hear from the other speakers. So thanks, Matt. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much, uh, Mignon. So, uh, Nancy... I, I sometimes think as much as I am paying attention to things, there's obviously really rich stories that I'm missing, and I had no idea there were over 2,000 mobile health clinics in the U.S., um, and no less that there are all these endeavors going on to really, really capture what difference this is making. So you've got some really nice visuals and sort of walk us through, again, Nancy Oriel here, walk us through kind of what is going on uh, and ha- how do we get to this point. Uh, Madge, thank you. Um, I'd be delighted to share um, uh, the the story of mobile clinics and especially to share it from the perspective of the mobile clinic that um, I'm part of. So uh, let me take you back in time a little bit. In Boston in 1992, uh, working with the Harvard medical student Cheryl Dorsey and hundreds of community collaborators, we started a mobile clinic called the Family Band. I could talk for hours about the Family Band, but a recent uh, Robert Wood Johnson uh, report coined the phrase that explains why we started it. The Robert Wood Johnson phrase is, health starts where we live, work, learn, and play. And that's exactly what mobile clinics are designed to do, to bring health to the streets where we live, work, learn, and play. So why a van, Uh, especially in a city like Boston? Boston is home to some of the finest hospitals in the world. They provide all the miracles of modern medicine, yet right down the street from many of these great hospitals are some of the worst health outcomes in this country. It was exactly that disparity that inspired us to start the van to begin with. So the miracles of modern medicine are incredibly important to us all, but health is more than miracles. It's supporting the resilience of people, the integrity of families, and the adaptive strength of our communities. Health is tapping into the creative resources that exist in our communities and strengthening the linkages to the larger healthcare system. So the family van uh, travels a regular weekly route. It goes to communities with the highest burden of disease and the least access to prevention and health maintenance services. It parks in preset locations and opens its door to everybody. So um, we provide screenings, referrals, chronic disease management, nutrition counseling, HIV testing, and more. And all these services are free and confidential. People simply walk in off the street, no appointment needed, no questions asked. We're best described as just-in-time health care. We're there when our patients are ready to make the first step in taking control of their own lives. We're staffed by a range of healthcare professionals, community health workers, nutritionists, nurses, health educators, and many of whom are from the community that we serve. And as you mentioned earlier, there, there are probably about 2,000 mobile clinics across the country, and they each have a variety of staffing models, but you'll hear more about that from my colleagues. But no matter the staffing model, most clinics, just like the family van, are truly patient-centered. The patient initiates the counter, sets the agenda, and we listen. When needed, we make referrals to other community services and most especially to the local neighborhood health centers who are our most important collaborators. We help people take control of their own lives and we celebrate that with them as they do. As one of our patients said, our caring for them help them care for themselves. But that leaves sort of three critical uh, questions. Does it work? Is it cost effective? And is it scalable? So this graph uh, shows the uh, changes in total cholesterol, blood glucose, and blood pressure for all returning patients to the family van over a 12-month period. And notice that for each test, uh, a greater proportion of patients showed an improvement um, than those who either stayed the same or got worse. We we then did an expanded uh, analysis, an expanded example of blood pressure data that was published in Health Affairs in January of uh, this year. And it just demonstrated that there was a a 10 millimeter decrease in blood pressure over a 30 month period. And that relates to uh, nearly a 50% reduction in the risk of stroke. 
the other question is, is it cost effective? So in another paper we published in BMC in 2009, we presented an algorithm for uh, calculating our return on investment. So using evidence-based modeling derived from the Surgeon General's projected uh, value of prevention services, uh, the services we provide, that is, um, added to the cost of the reduced emergency room visits because people come to the mobile clinic rather than go to the emergency room, we estimated that uh, we had a return on investment of 20 to 1, meaning that for every dollar invested in this program, we were providing $20 of value. And lastly, is it scalable? As we mentioned, there are already 2,000 mobile clinics in the United States, um, and a group of 500 of us shown on this map are beginning to share data. Um, This is an effort for us to try to understand the scope and reach of the work that we mobile clinics do. And this is what we have found so far. Now, this is from the data that we have collected, so it's it's an ongoing process. We know that the majority of uh, mobile clinics serve urban areas. We know that we serve all ages, pediatric and uh, geriatric too. We serve all races. And some of our most venerable uh, institutions, like the Department of Defense and Veterans Affairs, are already heavily invested in mobile. But one final point I'd like to make. Many people have a preconceived notion that mobile clinics are a Band-Aid and only useful for disaster relief. Mobile clinics are great for disaster relief. In fact, they were essential after Katrina and Hurricane Sandy. But mobile clinics are much more than that. They are nimble and cost-effective ways to reach into communities and begin to address population health. Mobile clinics bring health into people's lives on the streets where they live, work, learn, and play. And I would like to thank you all for listening to me and the story of our 60,000 neighbors that the Family Van has served over these past 21 years. Right, we're looking at maybe one of those uh, lovely gentlemen uh, who's been helped. Thanks, Nancy. And uh, just a reminder to everyone, particularly if you're new to WIHI this fall, you can download these slides uh, at the end of the program. They'll also be part of the resource document that we post to the website tomorrow. So that's a really wonderful narrative, and I'm going to circle back uh, with uh, Nancy and Jennifer and others to tell you a little bit, so they'll tell us a little bit more about the mobile health map and the research there. Um, And I want you to bear with us if you could. We did get a little bit of a late start due to some technical problems, so we pretty much ironed them out, uh, but I'm going to probably cut into the Q&A portion of the show just a little bit, and what I'll do is I'll promise I'll make it up to everybody that if we have a lot more questions in the chat than we're able to get to today, we'll follow up with with folks and figure out a way to get you answers to your questions. All right, Anthony Vavasis, um, so you're one of the co-investigators for the Mobile Health Map, you're the director of a community health center in New York City, uh, that includes very mobile and agile services on wheels. So here you've got kind of Ninon's big picture sense about population health and community, uh, a story of, of one van and its uh, connection uh, to the larger um, network right now in the country in the form of the family van. What is going on with uh, the work that you're doing uh, in New York City? And I'd love for you to have give us a sense of what kinds of things are um, happening that are transitioning what you're doing from kind of a crisis mode to something that might be becoming kind of really part of almost the future system that we're trying to build? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Match. Thanks for including me in this uh, dialogue. Uh, and that's a great question that you're asking. Uh, just in order to get to the question, I'm going to give you a very brief history of our program. The program specifically within the Community Health Center, which is called Cal and Lord Community Health Center, is called Health Outreach to Teens, and the name itself captures the intention. Uh, Like with Nancy's program, we recognized many years ago that in trying to serve, uh, I will refer to as LGBT, and by that I mean lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender youth, we recognized that we really had to get to them if we were ever going to provide them with any sort of health care because so many were homeless, disproportionately so to their uh, heterosexual peers. Uh, And so we started a mobile program in order to get to them living on the streets of New York City. And again, similar to Nancy's story, they were surrounded by healthcare institutions, but, um, but didn't access the care. And so out of that came the HOT program where we could get our healthcare to them. Uh, and 
first, and so we are now a grant-funded program. Uh, we partner with uh, several community agencies that also serve homeless youth, and then we also will go to some uh, locations throughout the city where we know LGBTs congregate in the hope that we can get to them in places where they hang out. And because we're mobile, we have over the years moved to follow the populations as they have moved. Um, what I think is really important and answers your question is the fact that we have been able to successfully engage and keep these youth in care. And as probably most people on this call know, young people in general are not known for accessing health care until it becomes urgent or there's some crisis. And then on the other end, the person providing the care does his or her very best to engage them in care in an ongoing way. This is uh, amplified greatly when you're talking about LGBT youth, homeless youth, frequently youth of color, and when you're talking about the intersection of that population, people who have really deep distrust for systems and are probably not going to walk into even a community health center to get care. So by being on the street, first of all, we make ourselves available, affordable. More than that, though, we really work to make it, uh, our van a safe place for them to come. And this is something which I'm sure Nancy, all of us on this call will discuss later. But a key idea about mobile health clinics is that we are lowering the uh, intangible barrier of fear, power, uh, and other dynamics that make normal or standard healthcare institutions feel inaccessible to many people. So once we get the young people on the van, we build the trust with them. Our hope is that we give them two skill sets. One is how to better manage their own health, and two is how to access other parts of the healthcare system that formerly felt unavailable to them. So we might connect them with our our own FQHC. We might get them referral or other supportive services. But in so doing, what we're trying to do is become sort of the shepherd from no health care and the street to a more standard sort of health care. You know, and Ninyon made an important point when she was talking about community-wide health care because so frequently the mobile clinics get to the populations that are, go unmeasured and unseen but are actually have always been part of the community. And they might, for example, turn up in an emergency department when they're much farther along in a disease process than they might otherwise have been. So by engaging them early, by building trust, but also teaching them very concrete skills, connecting them to health benefits if we can, what we're also doing is acting as a connector for them to the larger healthcare system. And then along with that, it's building confidence, creating sort of an educational component in which the young person can learn <clears throat> how to speak the language of healthcare, you know, how to speak the language of entitlements, so that the, the bigger hope is that they can do this for themselves by the time they leave the program versus when they first arrived. Um, and so did that answer your question? Because really the point I'm trying to make is we are the bridge, or we try to be the bridge uh, into healthcare. Definitely. No, it does answer it. I think that's a big piece of what okay. we're trying to figure out. And I think some of the themes that you're mentioning, which is uh, how to start identifying things in the community further upstream uh, that otherwise uh, become very, very severe uh, and acute. Uh, once arrived at the healthcare system, this is all part of the, the picture. Um, and I think, you know, part of who you're embracing and reaching out to in the community is sort of resonates very much with what Nignan's talking about, about sort of figuring out right. the, the population. So thank you. I think that's a great picture, uh, at least an introduction. Um, and I think what I'd like to do is uh, go from thank you, go from the streets of New York City uh, to rural Louisiana. And uh, Leo Lacayo uh, um, is has been driving, but maybe he arrived at his destination. And uh, talk to us about the health hut, uh, and um, see if um, tell us what what that's all about. Um, I understand that among some of the things that you're really thinking about are avoidable hospital um, readmissions. Uh, but uh, Leo, for a couple minutes, uh, kind of give us a sense of what what you're up to. Well, thank you, and, and thank you for making me part of this group. I mean, the, these are, you know, Dr. Vavasi and Dr. Oreo and Jennifer, really, they've done so much, honestly, great work, the mobile map, et cetera, to, uh, 
that we have really looked into, which we had no idea it existed, but they have been tremendous support for us in, in this mobile unit that I just started about two years ago. You know, I'm in rural Louisiana, and uh, about 40, 45% of, of the United States, as we know, is, is rural. And what we noticed was, of course, all these parishes or counties geographically are very spread. So you have all these little towns, and then there's a main town uh, where there usually is a medium-sized or small-sized hospital which where people access to health care. And, you know, there was a well-done study here by a well-known company about what are the healthcare needs in uh, in this rural uh, parish? And basically, the number one problem with access to healthcare was transportation, which is exactly what a mobile unit tries to solve. Whether it's in neighborhoods, like Dr. Oriole said, even though you know was, they're in Boston, they have the best healthcare system in the world. But imagine rural Louisiana, which we don't have that, and, and then we have these distances of miles away. And for these poor people, they have to get rights and transportation is a major issue. So that's what we saw in the study. And the second was, of course, there's no doctors in this little towns of three, four, five thousand people. And so there's no access to health care. And then there are other major problems, of course, with prescription costs all associated. There are no pharmacies in the small town. So, you know, we, we looked at that and we decided, well, you know what, maybe the answer is to go mobile. And again, we, we started this our own without knowing, like Dr. Oriel said, that there were 2,000 so mobile vans across the United States and that there were all these amazing resources that they have worked for years to put the data together by Dr. Bavasi and Oriel and Jennifer Bennett. So, you know, we have been in operations two years and we are, we're seeing a good volume of number of patients, but we go and the key is, you know, healthcare, health fairs are great. But if you go and measure a high blood person in a small town, you do a health fair, and you're not coming back to them. You're not going to have absolutely an impact in their blood pressure or their sugars. So basically what, what we're doing is we're going to the same town, the same data, the same place. So there's continuity in care for these poor rural patients that have no access to health care. And, you know, we, we've been a little innovative with medications and so on, but that's the that's the, the thing about our program. What we have also tried to do, of course, we have a full staff with a nurse practitioner, but it, it's been wonderful when you hear the stories of these patients, you know, that they, they feel fatigued, you know, and they're from a little town, and then you measure their sugar is 700, you know, and so they, they didn't know why they were so fatigued and not feeling well, but again, they have no health insurance and no transportation, so... Mobile has been to us a wonderful thing. Uh, I, I think it could be applied as a model, at least in rural America. I, I think it would work, you know, for all the reasons that, that both speakers said before. And the last thing I want to say is that we are looking at readmissions because a lot of these, for example, diabetics that are in these little towns, they have no access, again, to transportation or whatever. They come to the hospital when they're feeling really sick and they get on an average seven times readmitted to the hospital just because nobody's controlling their sugar. Well, you could imagine those seven readmissions costing thousands of dollars. So we're looking at, of course, every patient that has no health insurance that fit our profile. You know, we don't have specialists, but they're diabetic, they have high blood pressure, can we fill up at a mobile unit, which is called a health And if so, you know, can we make an impact on these readmissions? And we're in the process of looking at that. We don't have the numbers yet, but it's exciting that we are. And thank you for your time. Thank you. Uh, Leo, uh, I'm going to ask you just two very, very quick questions. Uh, I know that, and Jennifer, I think, has this on her list of things, of questions that are often asked very quickly. How is your van funded, and is it connected to uh, any nearby bricks-and-mortar health care? Is it connected to the Northern Louisiana Medical Center or any other institution nearby? Yeah, so the, the question, the answer to the first question is there was a major foundation in this area, there is, and they, they had to spend their dollars as a foundation to health care needs in the parish with the cell of the hospital. So, you know, it was like a foundation looking for a program, and they didn't know what to do with these funds. And so that's, and, and so it was great. You know, they're very happy. We're very happy. And they're, they're accomplishing their mission, and so are we. So answering to your question, that foundation, having said that, 
were spreading. Like, as you see, there are more needs, you know, that we, we had. I mean, you, you're a diabetic. Let's say you're a diabetic, but they, these people are overweight. So, you know, you put them on insulin, but what are you doing about exercise program? What are you doing in nutrition? So we have another grant that was given to us by another foundation about an hour away in North Louisiana that, that wanted to do that. So that's a new program that we have. Then we have another grant that came in, you know, that was having to do with mental illness. A lot of these diabetics are overweight, they're depressed, they have severe anxiety and depression. So we're trying to treat the whole patient. And so answering the question again, we have three foundations right now that are funding us. And with these admissions, we're about to see if we get a new grant for this. The second question is we're not connected at all to the hospital. We're, we're an independent nonprofit, uh, you know, with our own board, of course, but the, the hospital really has not, nothing to do with the organization. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Well, it triggers a lot of uh, curiosity um, around a lot of things. And uh, I always beg everyone's indulgence on WIHI. Uh, we're an hour-long program. Um, often we've talked about having it a longer show so we could really <laughs> do justice to all of this. But it is hard for anyone to afford the time. So we're, we're, we're trying to hit on some high points, and hopefully this will pique your interest. And we'll come back to this topic. We surely will. And now I want to thank you, Leo. Now I want to turn to Jennifer. Uh, I think funding is, you, you would say, is sort of one of the most common questions that get asked. And certainly you mentioned foundation, and that could make people think, so how long is that going to last? Um, but Jennifer uh, has some sort of interesting things to say about really, you know, how do you do this? Uh, if, if this is uh, something you're thinking about or you're in the early stages of imagining uh, a van, um, what would it take? Jennifer, thank you. Sure, Madge. Um, I'm going to give a very sh brief thumbnail sketch of some key operational considerations to think about when starting a mobile health clinic. And I'm sure myself and all my colleagues here are available if you want to contact us offline because there's certainly a lot of detail involved in understanding the nuances of the operations and other considerations. So Madge mentioned funding, but I'm actually going to start first with cost because when any of us get calls, and we get a lot of them, um, about how to start a mobile clinic, that's always the first question that comes up. What does it take to start and run a mobile clinic? And there are many, many variables. You know, Dr. Lacayo is out in Louisiana, and he's running a rural program that's covering huge, um, you know, areas of the state. Here in Boston, we're urban. You know, he's doing primary care. We focus on prevention. Um, so our staff models are different, and that impacts our costs. Um, and the type of equipment needed to provide the services can be very different, um, whether you're doing dental, mammography, um, vision, or preventative services or primary care so obviously that impacts every um, every aspect of that is going to impact your annual cost however we have conducted some research and we know that the average cost of running a mobile clinic annually is just about three hundred thousand dollars this will vary, you know, depending on the number of days you're out, the fuel, um, the services, equipment costs, and clinical supplies and things like that that you need to achieve your goals. I can tell you that here in Boston, our annual costs range between, you know, half a million to $600,000 a year. The bulk of our costs are on staff, and, you know, that's a key consideration. Many mobile um, units are operating and are staffed completely by volunteers. They're run by faith-based organizations or they were started by doctors or dentists that are able to solicit volunteers from their professional associations. You know, others have professional staff, so that um, that's a key component of the costs. Another one is collaboration with other community health centers, with hospitals, with WIC offices, with, you know, any number of partners. And we here in Boston, once again, work in collaboration with all the community health centers and a number of other agencies. And what that that does for us is it's another staff member on board with us each day in our case we work with a number of community health centers on uh, HIV testing and counseling and it helps us reduce our costs and it helps them meet their goals around outreach um, and then, of course, case management and administration. What are you going to need 
in terms of follow-up with your patients and what do you need on the administrative side for follow-up and reimbursement. You know, those are key um, factors in, in costs. The other key cost area that everybody wants to know about is what do these vehicles cost? Well, there's many of them that you can get used. They're also new. The price does range quite widely from about $150,000 to about half a million dollars, depending on the size and the equipment needed. Um, our our uh, colleagues who run mammography vans that are using new digital technologies are on the higher end of that scale. And then, of course, the natural question, as, as Madge said, is, well, how do you fund these clinics? And Dr. Lacayo talked about the grants that are supporting his programs that he's running there in Louisiana. We did a survey once again through our, our research um, portal mobile health map, and we found out recently that the primary source for sun, um, funding mobile clinics was as followed. About 41% of them are affiliated with a parent organization, like a hospital, a university, or a Department of Public Health, and that is their primary source of funding. About 23% rely primarily on philanthropy. 16% are funded primarily by state and local grants, and only 11% seek reimbursement through insurance, and about 9% are funded through federal grants. But all of us rely on some kind of mix of these different types of funding sources. The other thing I'm going to touch on very briefly is vehicle design and programmatic design. Um, one of the first things I had to do when I started work the family van eight years ago was actually purchase and design a new vehicle, and boy, was that fun and terrifying all at the same time. I would strongly recommend that anybody that's contemplating this contact our trade organization, the Mobile Health Clinics Association. Not only do they hold a program for anyone starting a mobile clinic that's phenomenal, but as a member, you have the option to get them to assist you with the design and selection of a vehicle. And also, don't hesitate, through Mobile Health Map, you can identify uh, mobile programs in your area and certainly reach out to those folks, um, talk to them about their programs, go tour those vans, and that'll help you figure out what you need as well. So what key consideration, obviously, space is very limited on a mobile clinic. Everything has to have a dual purpose. Our driver cab is uh, also an intake area. Um, the waiting room can be a place for group education and is outfitted with TVs and display screens. You know, if you're in an urban area or you partner with another entity like a school to sign up your clients or your patients, you may not need a bathroom. That's really essential space. You have to make a decision about that. And, of course, what technology is needed. Um, the other, you know, there's a million other details like what kind of weather are you going to be dealing with? What kind of terrain does your vehicle need to travel? Um, you know, many of our colleagues who operate in the south and the Midwest have awnings for hotter days. I've even seen mobile clinics with stages built into the side of them for large community events. So be sure to engage both your team, uh, your care team, as well as I said, the, your colleagues in the other areas that can be incredibly helpful. And there's only one other element I'm going to focus on. There's lots of others I could touch on. But in your program design, be sure to identify how exactly you're going to capture the outcome, uh, your outcome and the impact of your program on those communities that you're targeting. Of course, all of us get into this work because we want to be a part of making communities healthier. But the challenge is how do we prove that? And that's been a big focus of our work with Mobile Health Map. It's essential not only to understand who we're reaching, but are we helping them to improve their health and doing it cost effectively? So designing the physical plant to facilitate the relationship with your patients and to facilitate data collection is really, really essential. And one of the key considerations along with that is connectivity. In both rural and urban areas, many programs struggle with this. Uh, sometimes satellites are needed. Some of the newer tablets address this issue. But designing the vehicle and its layout to ensure your team can capture the results of, of the work in the community is one of the most critical elements. Wow. Okay. So that is really <laughs> a succinct soup to nuts with a million questions. And you know what, John? I think folks pretty much have got the chat thing down. And we're going to get, because we're kind of running a little behind schedule, uh, we're going to go right to your questions. We'll sort of try and even get, give you quick answers to some things. Uh, and I do encourage you um, 
to um, follow up with our folks at the Family Van uh, and Mobile Health Map, and you can find connecting uh, information on those sites as well. Is that correct? Yep, yeah, at mobilehealthmap.org or familyvan.org. Right, so we'll want to make sure that you continue to have um, access to our experts. Um, and as I said, if there are any questions remaining today, we'll try and get those answered as well. All right, so there's a couple themes to the questions. Uh, somebody wants to know, Leah, how did you calculate that 20 to 1 return um, on investment? Okay, um, I'll, be, oh, you're, I'll, I'll you're, take that you're, one. Oh, Nancy's going to take mm-hmm. it. Okay, very good. So um, uh, the we used a, we built an algorithm that's based on uh, the uh, work of the uh, National uh, Prevention uh, Priorities that was started by uh, uh, Surgeon General Satcher, where uh, an analysis was made of what was the um, value of various prevention strategies, and you know, specifically looking for the most cost-effective prevention strategies and assigning a uh, a quality, you know, sort of what is the um, value of that. We used uh, we looked at the prevention services we provide, um, multiplied it by the value of those services, and then also added the cost savings um, from the emergency room visits that were prevented by people coming to the um, uh, coming to the van. Uh, and we, those two together gave us the cost savings of the work we did in one year, and we divided that by the cost of the program for the year. Actually, you can go on Mobile Health Map and find the algorithm. Um, this is uh, a, you know, again, this was a, a first uh, attempt at trying to capture all the work we do. Um, it's a very, it's a difficult thing to do because we do so many different things. We, you know, collaborate with hundreds of different organizations. Okay, thank you very, very much. That does hit on that. And somebody said, great answer. So uh, I think it was, too. <laughs> very helpful. Go ahead, check out the algorithm. That's great that it is on the, on the site. A uh, couple of other questions about funding. So, uh, Leo, to you, and uh, maybe, Anthony, this might uh, also be something you could address. Um, what kind of funding would you ideally like? Uh, I mean, in other words, we have a lot. I think the fact that there are foundations involved isn't so surprising. And you talked about a fairly high percentage of, of vans that are over 40%, you said, connected to systems, um, health care. I don't know whether, Jennifer, those are therefore funded by those health care systems or not. But uh, Leo and then uh, and, and Jennifer is saying yes, that in that case, true. Uh, Leo, what kind of funding would you like? You've got three foundations. Would you, uh, would you rather be dealing with insurance reimbursement, uh, any other sources of funding? You know what, that, that's, that's a great question that we've talked it over and over. I, I think we're going to try to stay with foundations and diversify ourselves. You know, of course, the more foundations, uh, we have a better chance to sustain ourselves long term and not depend just on one big one. Right now, we are about 80% on one, but we're trying to stay away from that a little bit. I guess I'm not sure. Maybe Dr. Orion, Dr. Bavasi, and Jennifer know what's going to happen with uh, with this new healthcare, and you know maybe we'll have to start charging and and, and getting some of our uh, you know income from Medicaid. But as of right now, we're not. We don't we don't accept any insurance. We only see uninsured patients that belong to the parish. So. You know, I think this is going to change a little bit. I don't know how it's going to look. We're open to it. But as of right now, the foundation and some government grants, I think, are great. You just have to be careful with government grants. And, of course, I'm not an expert compared to the group that you have. But I got a big grant from the CDC. And you don't imagine how many changes they were trying to impose on us and and all the things that I had to do and the reports and and at the end, it looked like a completely different program that I was approved for. So believe it or not, I returned the money. And the CDC said, well, nobody's ever done that. Well, I said, well, I have to return the money because you've changed everything in service. And you don't accept anything for service. So we're trying to stay away from those things. Very, very interesting, uh, Leo. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, Anthony, uh, what about you in terms of funding and funding streams and uh, kind of what you have now and what would even be better? So, so our primary funder right now is the AIDS Institute of New York State. Uh, 
and that has to do with our target population and the fact that we do both HIV treatment testing and uh, work with communities that are at high risk for HIV infection. Uh, I, my ideal, I, I'm actually, I worry about uh, fee-for-service care on mobiles because when you're talking about marginalized communities, it's hard to guarantee a predictable flow onto the van. And as such, it makes it a really tough business business model and becomes about volume, which is antithetical to what mobiles are about. I think the secondary client of mobiles beyond the patient are every local hospital, ACO, community health center, with whom I would love to see us collaborate more. You know, as, as Nancy said, we I believe that wholesale we prevent thousands of visits to emergency departments per year, thousands of rehospitalizations. And so in terms of revenue models, I would love to see a more sophisticated model that acknowledges the community nature of the work that mobiles do and uh, and see a business partnership arise uh, among local hospitals, ACOs, community health centers, and mobile programs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a sustainable revenue model. Very, very interesting. Thank you, uh, Anthony. Uh, Carol Miller has a question. Trying to figure out, you know, uh, what types of benchmarks um, um, are being used, scorecard measures, what sorts of things. Maybe that ties into a little bit of the research that's been done and will be done. Nancy? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, actually, we're just uh, beginning to work with uh, Peggy Honoré uh, at, uh, at Health and Human Services looking at uh, quality and uh, use quality measures for um, for public health and see how that um, matches up with the work we do on mobile clinics. So this work is just beginning again. We're hoping it will end up being another calculator on the mobile health map. But the concept is how do you, how do we mobile clinics know that we are addressing the needs um, of our populations? Uh, how do we follow the outcome of the work we do? I mean, obviously following a patient and seeing their blood pressure get better, that's what we've done and that's, that's a fantastic um, and important outcome. But I think there are larger questions. Like how are we actually impacting population health? How are we impacting the community in a larger sense? And um, this is uh, work we're working on, and uh, stay tuned. Okay, sounds interesting. Several, we've got a question about uh, infect, excuse me, infection prevention um, as you know, part, part of what might uh, be happening on a, a mobile health van. Uh, cancer care, uh, sort of going beyond mammography and screening. Um, I I think what's well, probably safe to say with over 2,000 clinics, there's an awful lot that's going on that we can barely kind of capture, and there is a real range of services, even if, as Jennifer and you were both saying, Nancy, there's sort of a sweet spot uh, of, of services as well. Um, so uh, maybe we'll kind of put, keep those uh, ideas out there. Somebody is asking in particular, Jennifer, your mention of 300000 to $600,000 for the mobile unit for supplies. Somebody is wondering, does that mean, does that cover the cost of staff or that assumes staff are volunteers? That is actually covering the cost of staff. So 300 is an average nationwide. Our particular program annually ranges from 500 to 600,000. And really that's dependent on the funding we're able to secure. But, you know, about uh, two thirds of that is staffing costs. Okay. Has anybody uh, with us today uh, seen much interest from the employer community uh, in yeah. workplace sites? Uh, Jennifer? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there's an interesting trend in terms of for-profit mobile clinics that are emerging to uh, serve that population. Nancy and I were at the World Healthcare Congress a few years ago, you know, where there's such a huge interest from the employer community in prevention and wellness programs. And these for-profit mobile units have really uh, jumped into that space. And then here in Boston, our colleagues at Dana-Farber with their mammography van also do go to employers. We ourselves have been looking at doing something like that in partnership with the Jocelyn Clinic um, and providing screening and testing uh, to address metabolic syndrome. So I think it's something we're all thinking about, and some you know, of these for-profit entities are actually doing it. Okay, very, very good. Well, you know, we are, believe it or not, getting to the top of the hour. Ninyan, we didn't forget about you out in Portland, Oregon. I know we gave you such a hard time about your cell phone, and I think Ninyan had to, like, move herself away from her phone about 50 feet uh, in order not to be distorted. But we're going to bring you back in here, and you've heard a lot of good stuff here. Any any comments? Or 
at any comments or thoughts, Ninyan, you'd, you'd like to make before we start to wrap up? Um, I think just hearing the other speakers, it's, it's, it's undeniable what an opportunity it is to collaborate with mobile health clinics to either learn from them, to bring them in as a, as a partner um, in your own ability to manage the populations that you serve. I think going out there and using the mobile health map to find the mobile health clinics that are in your own community, just having a conversation with them is a great place to start. Um, and certainly we've provided a lot of resources to get, to get it started, but um, I think that the, the time is right now, um, and, and like I said, the opportunity is undeniable. Thank you so much, Ninyan. Uh, have a good rest of the week out in Portland. I want to also thank uh, Dr. Leo Akayo uh, for your time today and hearing about the Health Hut. I know everybody was speaking to us from all kinds of circumstances today, so we're thrilled that we were able to barge in on schedules. Thank you, Anthony Vavasas as well, Nancy Orio here, uh, and also um, Jennifer. And I, I really, um, Jennifer Bennett, and I really am I'm thrilled that we at least got this on the radar screen. Um, I, I, I too say to myself, my God, what was I thinking we would get done in this one hour? We are always trying and trying and refining and refining, and we do hope that you do take away some um, interesting ideas here. And, um, you know, we didn't get a chance to find out whether many of you are, in fact, engaged uh, yourselves um, in uh, mobile health clinics. And if you are and you're still haven't and you're still with us, go ahead and chat that in and just let us know. Uh, if you happen to be working with a mobile health uh, clinic or uh, trying to get one started, uh, quickly, before you before you leave us, uh, just chat that in. Uh, we've still got the screen up here. I want to thank our guests. Again, uh, you can catch some of the discussion on Facebook and Twitter as well. Um, don't forget, you can download the chat. You can download all the slides. Uh, any questions whatsoever, anything that was confusing today, you can um, uh, send us a note to info at IHI.org. On September 26th on WIHI, we're going to be looking at recognizing, excuse me, recognizing Recognizing person and family-centered care, always events at IHI. And by always events, I mean this fascinating recognition program uh, that IHI has uh, taken on from, taken over, I should say, from the Picker Institute. Uh, you'll be really, really thrilled to learn about what what's involved there. The webpage about that is now live, so you could enroll if you'd like. Check out our archive page tomorrow for all kinds of re resources. Some of that you see today, additional resources, the audio, uh, the people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse. We also have help from a Northeastern co-op, Nicole. Uh, the music and opens that opens and closes WIH. We've got some original arrangements, and now you're hearing a little bit of uh, Charlie Hayden. Um, I absolutely love this CD, so I had to put it on today. And I really want to thank you all for your patience today. We're, we're back in uh, biz here for the fall and the winter with you. We had a few little technical uh, kinks, and I, I thank all the WIHI audience for your wonderful support. It's my privilege, as I always say, to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.